The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may email us at wfmp.louisville at gmail.com. Now what's the word? Democracy. Yeah, what's the word? Democracy. Now what's the word? Democracy. Yeah, what's the word? Democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. The seeds you sow will spread democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. Welcome, everyone, to Election Connection on Forward Radio WFMP 106.5 FM. I'm your host, Ruth Newman, and today we are going to continue on, as we've been doing, scrutinizing some of the less publicized, less understood items on our ballot. So if you missed last week, I encourage you to go to our website, forwardradio.org, and click on the Programs tab to select Election Connection, and you'll find my playlist there, and, and you can see the various issues we've been tackling. Today's issue is the proposed tax levy, and you will find that also on your ballot. I have with me my special guests, Gay Adelman. She is co-founder of Dear JCPS, and that organization works on behalf of voters, taxpayers, and stakeholders in our public school system. She's also parent of a graduate of Shawnee in West Louisville. We also have Yvonne Rivera. She is a teacher at Jefferson County Public Schools and also a member of the Jefferson County Teachers Association. And finally, we have Latasha Harrison, who is parent and founder of the Louisville Parent Teacher Organization. So welcome to all of you. So I want to begin by just reading the issue on our ballot. So it says, are you for or against the Jefferson County Board of Education better supporting the education of students in Jefferson County public schools, including improvements to school facilities by levying a real estate and personal property tax of seven additional cents per $100 valuation? So you have a choice of yes or no on the ballot. So any of you guys uh, can chime in. I'd like uh, to draw attention to the language on that ballot. It says, are you for or against, but then the choices are yes and no. The ambiguity is gonna create some confusion. Oh yeah, that is true. It should probably have said for or against. <laughs> Whoever submitted that and wrote that probably was not aware that for and against was not gonna be one of the choices. So they probably should have just said, are you for? Do you support? And then they could say yes or no. Latasha, what did you think when you saw that? Um, Dr. Polio did state that they are going to try to do some community engagement to make sure that people know what they were trying to do. But it, it should have been clarified. I've never seen a ballot measure that looks like that. Now, I've seen one that you have to vote no to get the yes something to happen 
and yes to stop something, which is confusing. I have seen that before, but I've never seen one that didn't directly say, do you support blah, blah, blah? Or do you, you know, do you want to repeal blah, blah, blah? Putting both in there is just, I don't know. Now, Latasha happens to be right, as it turns out. My absentee ballot, which just arrived in the mail, contains a slip of paper that attempts to clarify this confusing language. The answer to your question is yes, regardless if you're for or against. So I could see this being something that would be challenged in court. Like it's set up for failure simply because it's so ambiguous to begin with. I can't see any way that you could challenge this in court and come out being able to have your tax increase. It's still going to be on the ballot, but then it could get thrown out. But basically, voters could show up, vote no, they get it thrown out and it goes into effect anyway. That is a, also a big PR debacle waiting to happen, if you ask me. This is not the only confusing issue on the ballot. Last week's discussion that we had on the two constitutional amendments are also quite, especially the first one, extremely confusing. You have to look at who's behind them, like uh, who's funding them. There's even some things to look into when it comes to this tax increase. You know, who's behind the Yes for JCPS organization that is promoting the, the tax increase currently? Mm-hmm. You know, we have to look at that. All three of my children are proud products of JCPS. Go Atherton. But I don't feel that I'm qualified to talk about quality in the school from a parent's point of view. I can't talk as a teacher because my youngest child graduated in 2011. That's almost 10 years ago. But one thing I'd like to address is people talking about how in the good old days, everything was better. You know, John Oliver while he was still on The Daily Show, did a great piece on when was the good old days. And they talked to people, and in each era, they said, what are you talking about? It was terrible. You know, people who lived through those eras as adults. And then he said, you know what? The good old days, they're talking about the good old days because that's the decade they were children. <laughs> you know? <laughs> They didn't have the reality of what was going on. And I think there's a lot of that when people talk about how there was a golden age of schooling when all the children were above average, to quote Garrison Keillor. You know, the good old days never existed. When were the good old days? Was it 1960 when 40% of people were not high school graduates in the 1970s when 30% of Americans did not graduate from high school? I mean, was it in the 2000s, you know, when it was 68%? We have higher graduation rates now. Or maybe it was 1950s, the glorious 50s, the golden age, you know, which is just coincidentally the last decade of segregated schools. Half of Americans did not graduate from high school. And the further back you go, the worse it gets. Until you go to 1910, when 90% of Americans didn't graduate from high school. There was never that golden age. The other things they bring up are also things that either don't match up reality, or they're espousing two things that don't go together. We don't need a tax increase. All we need to do is end busing. 
then you're talking about more money than this. Because if everybody's going to walk to school, you have way more schools you have to build. So, you know, don't think you can get segregated schools for free. I mean, people don't want to say that out loud. But if that's what you want, you need to pay for your racism. Yeah, in other words, they don't have enough schools on the West End for people to walk. Is that correct? That is totally correct. Okay. That's actually true even in the East End. You are going to stop all busing. First of all, you have to end the ag magnet program. You know, I'm not sure you thought this through, but okay. The second casualty is I live three blocks from Atherton. At Atherton, there's kids coming from all across the district. You know, everybody who, who was a hippie in the 60s wants to send their kids there. So now that area becomes bigger. Because you're not bringing things. So what do you do then? If you have to be within two miles of a school to go to it, you've got to build schools, not just in the West End, but in the East End. Decide what you want. You want to pay more than this to get resegregated schools? Or are you willing to deal with a little bit of diversity? Either way, you're going to be paying more. It just depends on what you're paying for. So can you tell me what this tax increase is going to try and accomplish? Because I know some of the questions on Nextdoor were asking, is it bricks and mortar that they're using the money for? Or is it operating expenses? Is it both? People don't really even know. It's both. Part of it is there is a commitment to spend more money building some schools in the West End. Because right now, busing is just one way. It's in the single digits. The number of students in the East End who are bused west, that is, they don't have a different option. It's like in the single digits. The other ones are going to manual or they're going to mail or they're doing something like that. In addition, the last high school they built was Ballard High School. And something else that people don't think about is, is it fair that you have one level of funding in the East End and one in the West? And you're saying, come on, how does that happen when these are Title I schools? What is a Title I school? A Title I school is a school in which over a certain percentage, like 70 or something, are in poverty. So there are schools where most of the kids are poor. And so in the last five years, the state has cut JCPS's funding by $42 million. Wow. And in some schools, you can make up for it more than another. In the schools, well, lots of the parents are doctors and lawyers and accountants and just, you know, make a good deal of money. Your PTA, you can have fundraisers, you can do things that schools that are 80-something percent free and reduced lunch cannot do. They don't have the money personally to donate. They don't have the connections where they call their good friend who owns a business and will donate something for the silent auction. They don't know some big speaker who can come in for a spaghetti dinner and raise money. You see what I'm saying? Right. The payment for schools has actually gone down instead of gone up. That's what you're saying. Yes. 
I've got a quote from one of the people on next doors I found who said that Lexington has us beat by a long shot when it comes to supporting their school system, facilities, and opportunities. They sure do. And you don't have to go all the way to Lexington. Mm-hmm. You can just go to Anchorage. The person who's <laughs> leading this lives in Anchorage, where she uh-huh. pays 25, 26 cents more than mm-hmm. we do in our taxes. I don't know why she's not leading the charge in her own district. She's the one who started the petition, you mean? Teresa Camariano, yeah. In addition, we only use the property tax. You know that in Lexington, they have something additional that funds schools as well. We have more students with special needs and English language learners than any other district in the state because we're a city and because we do not cheat them out of their due. And I've got the tax levies ahead of me. Frankfurt's 99. Anchorage is 98.2, Fayette is 81, plus they have a utility tax in Lexington that goes towards this, and part of their occupational tax goes towards this. We're at 58.5 on the motor vehicle and 73.6. So we are lower than Henry, Franklin County, Frankfurt, Nelson, Oldham, Eminence, Fayette, E-Town, Bowling Green, Paducah, Bardstown, Owensboro, and Anchorage, which is the second highest in the state. The priorities are so curious. And their motor vehicle rate is higher than ours. Not quite twice as much, but, you know, getting there. Yeah, and and not to mention the fact that here in Louisville, as opposed to some of these other communities, we have students who are struggling with homelessness so much more so than these other areas. The schools need to provide free lunches. They have all kinds of other obligations that these other schools don't necessarily have with their children. Before COVID, we had 6,000 students who were homeless. Wow. There's no telling what it is now. And those are more expensive students to educate. Kids with special needs cost around $100,000 a piece. If you have more of them, you know, per student rate, it's going to go up more. My journalism professor in high school used to say, figures don't lie, but liars can figure. So you can calculate things certain ways. Mm-hmm. They don't break out how many of our students are special needs. It's a lot. We have mm-hmm. students from I don't know how many countries. We have so many students who speak English as a second language that there's a school for them that Mm -hmm. has more than 700 students. Every single school has students that are English language learners and special needs kids. Every single one. And you are listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM, With me, your host, Ruth Newman. We're tackling an issue on the ballot this November, the school tax levy, with special guests, Yvonne Rivera, JCPS educator and member of the Jefferson County Teachers Association, Gay Adelman, co-founder of Dear JCPS, an education advocacy organization here in Louisville, and Latasha Harrison, founder of the Louisville Parent Teacher Organization. So when somebody makes the comment, which they did on Nextdoor, 
that we should just allow students to have more freedom to select their own school. How do you respond to that when here we have these special needs kids? I'm not even sure that a private school would accept them. They don't have to accept them. And if they do, they don't have to provide their services. By law, the public school isn't getting their voucher or allotment would still have to go in and provide their services. Mm -hmm. So if they get a student, they may accrue the student's money. They do not accrue the student's full expenses. Look at what has happened in other states. There's an excellent documentary called Education Inc. about the multi-billion dollar charter school industry and also backpacks full of cash, I think it was called, the one that Matt Damon narrates, where in January, kids are going back to their schools, but their money already mm -hmm. went to the private school. Mm -hmm. So if you get slow, or your behavior is not the best, or you're just expensive, goodbye mm -hmm. to you. What do you say about the comment that this is the worst time for a tax increase because of the fact we're in a pandemic and there's so much unemployment. How do you respond to that? It is a terrible time. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But mm -hmm. what is the alternative? Education is so much more expensive today than it was in February. Every kid out there has a tablet. We have to provide hotspots. We're still feeding those kids twice a day because if we don't, they don't eat. This is more expensive than ever. What is the alternative? To let children go hungry? To let some children just not get an education? What's their solution? Yeah, during an emergency and a crisis like this, the only financial resources that we have are from the government, from the taxpayers. And those who have the money need to pay. It's a property value. So it does increase by the increase in your property value. Is that right? That's exactly right. It's $70 for $100,000 of property tax. Right. Or the way they've got it written is it's seven cents per $100 of valuation on your property. Is it a bad time to ask people for 70 extra dollars? Sure it is. But what else it is, it's a bad time to deny people unemployment. It's a bad time for the federal government to prioritize stealing a Supreme Court seat over funding cities and states. What would they have us do? Stop educating every kid that's poor and can't afford an internet? And the upshot would be if the children were not taken care of and given a good education, there will be a bigger pipeline from school to jail. Or exactly. From, and then it's just a vicious cycle, it seems to me, of funding more militarized police to take care of more crime in the streets, to have to take care of people who lose members of their families because of so much violence, because if you don't start at an early age investing in your children, I don't see where else is a better way to spend your money, the money that we do have, than improving the status of our children and the opportunities for them to be successful. You know, there's an interesting Finland. Why do they have the best educational system in the world? 
Finland didn't set out to have the best educational system in the world. That was an unforeseen byproduct. They set out to make their kids' lives more equal. That's what led to this. They set up lots of preschools so kids would have an equal start in life. They have them playing. They don't do high-stakes testing. It's all about the kids. And lo and behold, they did better on tests. Mm -hmm. They didn't go about doing any of the things that we do. They didn't do drill and kill. They didn't do any of that. That's the real message. Other countries do better than we do because they don't starve part of the population. This is before COVID. One in four children in America of every race, of every ethnicity is growing up poor. In Europe, it's like 4%. Poor kids don't test well. And they don't end up participating in a democracy. So we have to start with the kids in order to even consider having what our values are supposed to represent. You know, we're one of the few countries in the world that don't have universal preschool. That's amazing. In the old days, we didn't talk about students being school ready. Abraham Lincoln's, not his stepmother, who could read and write, but his birth mother was totally, completely illiterate. So she was going to teach him to read and write? We didn't expect parents to do things that maybe they couldn't do. Mm -hmm. But now we do. You know, if you want kids to know something in kindergarten, then you should be teaching them in preschool. That's everywhere but here. You know, I'm at one of the newer elementaries, which was Uh built the year after I was born, 1959. You know, there are a few new ones. I think in the last 10 years, they built like a couple of elementaries and a middle school. But there's about 30 schools that are so old. And, you know, the same people who want kids to go back to in-person school on thinking about, you know what, if you're going to have in-person school, you're going to need to pay for have that. There's no scenario where you don't pay more money unless you're okay with kids not getting educated, not getting fed, and getting sick. Yeah, if we ever get back to the period where we can actually have in-person schools, I would imagine that we are really lacking when it comes to elementary schools. You know, one of the thoughts was that we'd send them first. You know, the same problems that we had kind of linking up here happens on Google Meet and Microsoft Teams. Little kids are little kids. They're not even going to try to keep the kindergartners masked because that's just lulling people into a false sense of security. That's not going to happen because that's just acknowledging reality. I love kindergartners. After third grade, they're my favorite grade. Mm-hmm. But to be honest with you, their laminated name tags last about three weeks because they chew through them like little beavers. I wish <laughs> I were making this up. It's a solution for these kids when we're you know, in the middle of a pandemic. How, how can we deal with that? To do that, you just have to get your rate down as low as New York City. You know, they were hit hard, but they did what you're supposed to do which was they shut down the city. Uh They stopped evictions. Uh They started paying people out money. They shut down completely. If you've Uh got a thousand new cases a day. Which is where we're at. 
<laughs> which is where we're at. And there are places worse than us. Then mm -hmm. no matter where you go, you're bumping into someone who's got it. It's almost impossible to avoid somebody who has it. And when it comes to remote, I mean, that brings all kinds of complexities and problems with parents. That also takes money. Money out of pocket, too. Well, we certainly are in a conundrum right now, and it's just so hard to figure our way out of it. And you're listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM with me, your host, Ruth Newman. We're tackling an issue on this November's ballot, the school tax levy. And we just heard from Latasha Harrison, founder of the Louisville Parent Teacher Organization, Yvonne Rivera, JCPS educator and member of the Jefferson County Teachers Association, and Gay Adelman, co-founder of Dear JCPS, an education advocacy organization here in Louisville. And we also have with us today Kimberly Johnson, who is a middle school educator and also an adjunct college professor. So welcome, Kimberly. Hi, everyone. So let's continue on with our conversation. There's an awful lot of uh, concern and disagreement when it comes to raising taxes for JCPS, the Jefferson County Public School System. Kimberly, is there any particular uh, passion that you have about this issue? Yes, I do. I think the whole dynamics of how it became an issue is interesting. I think that our community is very divided on this issue, and that's concerning. And I will even say I'm still a yes, but as far as this issue is concerned, because we teach kids when they're doing critical thinking that they don't have to be a yes or no. They can be a yes, but. And uh, that's where I am right now as a person who believes in being a good steward. There's some things that need to happen if I am going to be a yes. What are those things? Culturally relevant counselors and even teachers and their whole decolonizing the curriculum. At this particular juncture, we have to have these things. We cannot continue to go in the direction that we've been going. It's people's hard-earned money. Our community is facing the whole thing with Breonna Taylor and our community needs to heal. And part of healing will be making sure that these things happen with this tax increase for our future. Uh -huh. So is this cultural counseling, is it something you want for the students or something you want for the teachers or both? I think all. I think that teachers, I think adults uh, need healing and they also need to understand culturally relevant, especially as public schools are becoming more and more diverse. Nobody seems to want to talk about that. With that being the case and with 80% of teachers being white female, how are we going to make sure that our diverse student population, their educational needs are being met. How are we going to do that? The only way to do that is through education. A very wise friend of mine told me that when you have a house plant and uh, that house plant is not thriving, you don't blame the plant. <laughs> you change the soil, you add more water, you give less water, maybe they're getting too much sun. Whatever it is, you change the environment. So it uh -huh. is the environment that needs to change so that our plants can thrive. 
can you give me some aspects of the environment that you think are eroding our ability to relate to each other in the classroom? What are the problems that exist right now in the classroom that are keeping people so divided? That's a loaded question. (laughs) I try to answer it the best way I can. One is the physical environment. So when your school has windows that do not lock and the school has been broken into several times and the physical environment is considered unsafe. And so that's part of the tax increase is to fix the physical facilities. And then you have mold and asbestos. And so we have these things going on, especially the kids that are already coming from poor living conditions at home. And then they're coming to school and they're having to breathe in this stuff and try to work and try to thrive in this environment. That also brings up HVAC systems and COVID and returning to school with COVID threat and our black and brown population being at a higher risk than the rest of us. So, you know, those are the schools that have the older HVAC systems as well. And then you have the way the schools are not psychologically safe. When you have teachers that are calling you a dummy, maybe not to your face, but behind your back, these are the belief systems that are in play. That is going to show up in the classroom, whether the student heard it or not, the student can feel that. A person can feel if you consider them beneath you, if you are derogatory towards them, they can sense that from you. And then we have the lack of cultural safety. I can't be who I am. I'm taught at home that we're a family and we do everything together. And then at school, you don't want me to learn in a group. You want me to learn as an individual when I learn best as a group. The list can go on and on. Not learning the truth about slavery, hiding, all of our true history. What our president says is that if we talk about these things, it's just going to make people hate America. No, I don't think that. As a Black woman, I will always love America. America is my home. But I also need to deal with the truth. It's just like in your family. Like you're going to love your family, but you also need to deal with those family secrets. You need to deal with the truth. How can you elevate kids and deal with them on their own terms and understand where they're coming from when you're in a classroom with so many students? How can you do that? And I'm hoping that this tax levy will address that to lower classroom size? Well, I haven't seen that a lot at the West End schools because most of the kids in those neighborhoods are bused out to different schools. And so at your low achieving schools, at your West End schools, they have low enrollments. And so you might have 15 to 20 kids in one class. And so those are not big class sizes. And the research has shown that even when class sizes have been decreased, that has not increased achievement because it's the teacher training that's most important. And one thing that I'm learning now is the whole thing about gifted education, which a lot of black and brown kids have been excluded from. Teaching as if your whole class is gifted is best practices. I'm also a two decade educator. And so I've been doing this a while. And I'm just learning that gifted education 
is best practices for all students because you don't know who's gifted. So in order to make sure that we're able to accurately identify giftedness, we need to provide that access and opportunity so that all of our gifted kids can come to the surface. Human beings are complex. And so the answers are complex. (laughs) So you've brought up a whole lot of issues about revamping the whole school system. I want to get us a little bit back into whether or not we should have this tax increase, which as I totally understand, is not going to solve these issues that you've raised. But you did bring something up that I would like to ask you about too, which is busing, because that was a big issue in my next door comments. You say it took you 45 minutes. Is that one way? Yes, that was one way. I was never able to stay after school for any after school activities. If my mother had to come and get me if I was sick, she would have had to find a ride or find some kind of way to come and get me from the school. I was very disconnected from the school and the school was very disconnected from me. It was both ways. Riding that bus one way, 45 minutes early in the morning. So I had to start going to school sooner than most kids. And then there was a lot of bullying on the bus because that was a long way. So kids would get underneath the seats and tie your shoestrings to the seat poles and uh, because kids don't know what to do. The whole bus system actually made things harder in a lot of ways to be a student in school and to be a parent of that student. There are a lot of people that don't realize that the busing is only out of the West End. Like we did bus both ways for a few years, so people think it's still that way, but it's not. It's only affecting West End families right now, and it has been for the last 20 years Mm -hmm. or so. Do parents want their kids to go to the school that's closest to their house if that school is falling apart, if that school has all new teachers, if nobody's using culturally relevant strategies? As a parent, like you're having to weigh, do I want my kids to go to this quote unquote bad school or do I want them to get on a bus and have to ride 45 minutes one way? And I think that there's a lot of parents choosing that bus ride. because they want their kids to get the very best education they can get. And in their viewpoint, they feel like it's the schools in the East or the schools away from where we live that are better. And that's not necessarily true, but that's the perspective. Which Uh is why the evaluation of the student assignment plan is so critical right now. They're trying to get this tax increase passed based on uh, the implementation of the recommendations because if you live in the West End, automatically going forward, they want families to be able to choose to continue to be bused or to now be able to stay closer to home. But in order for that to happen, we have to have more schools in the West End because if everyone were to choose that tomorrow, we wouldn't have enough schools. So that right there makes the case for the tax increase. And you could say we could stop paying so many exorbitant salaries. Uh, There's a lot of misinformation about how uh, the money is acquired and how it is earmarked and transportation funds have to be used for transportation. So even if we quote unquote ended busing, we wouldn't have all this excess money to spend. So it's really important that people know the truth about our student assignment plan. And so one of the demands that our coalition has brought forth is racial equity analysis protocol on the student assignment plan and present it to the public. So the public needs to understand that in order to build these schools in the West End, we actually need to increase our credit limit. So uh, the tax increase is the only way to do that because we currently have overextended all of our ability to borrow. So in order to borrow to build more buildings, we have to raise that credit limit, that bonding capacity is what that's called. 
And in order to raise our bonding capacity, we have to pass the tax increase. But what Kimberly is saying and what we are saying is that it can't be unconditional. We can't just say, okay, here's another seven cents on the on the hundred dollars. Do whatever you want. We need to continue to hold our decision makers accountable. Organizations like ours, these grassroots groups are doing that work. So what struck me about the list of comments that you sent us that you had collected on Nextdoor, nothing else, it's just very complex, right? So thank goodness that there are grassroots groups. Thank goodness there are parents, there are educators like Kimberly and Yvonne who have been doing this work and who know what needs to take place. And that is an opening to say something about having this radio station on the air, bringing you guys together. We've got to keep this station on the air, folks. So please go to forwardradio.org and you can click on participate if you want to have your say on this station. And you can also click on donate and help us stay on the airwaves so that we can get yours and other grassroots people's voices on the air. Because that's the only way we're going to really solve our problems is from the bottom up. So thank you, Kimberly. I really appreciate that. And it just brings up how, as you said, Gay, how complex this is. One of the other things I'd like to bring up about these next door comments that you gave uh -huh. us, I see some in here that are just flat out lies. This guy who says he graduated from Shawnee High School, a, a bus round trip took six hours. Thing is, is he wouldn't have graduated from Shawnee if that was the case. That's like the only school they're bused out of in the high school areas. Six hours, that's, there's no way. So. People have to also be cautious not to just believe everything you see online to be true. And we do have a, another show on this station called Critical Thinking. And just to remind you, this is Election Connection with me, your host, Ruth Newman, and special guests, Kimberly Johnson and Yvonne Rovira, both JCPS educators, as well as Gay Adelman, co-founder of Dear JCPS, an advocacy organization, and they're all lending their perspective on the school tax levy proposal that you'll be voting on this coming election. So is most of this money going to be spent building new schools, or are there other things that the money is going to be spent on? So because it is just a regular tax, it can be spent on anything the board decides to spend it on. There are no restrictions. Um, however, the board did pass a resolution a couple of weeks ago outlining how they're committing to spend the money, and it breaks down into percentages. 28% is going to be spent on new facilities, and that doesn't necessarily mean West End schools either. It's schools throughout the district. And what kind of access do uh, citizens have to the Board of Education? Well, we all have a board member that represents where we live, but we also can contact the board members for the schools where our students attend. So you really do have two channels uh, of direct communication. In normal times, you can speak at board meetings, but since COVID, the public has not been permitted an opportunity to speak at board meetings. This has been a cumulative effect. We've not been able to share our concerns and bring our ideas, and we see them making more and more moves that seem to be more and more disconnected. So as we elevate these concerns, these roadblocks have been put up and these attacks have started coming as if we're somehow not on their side. Uh, but we did get a meeting with Dr. Polio a couple of weeks ago and they've made some inroads. They've made some gestures because we don't have a seat at the table. They're still not really meeting those needs. And that's unfortunate because our demands are part of what you're seeing across this country. Police free schools and 
uh, investing in front end and divesting from back end punitive, you know, moratorium on charter schools. These are all things that we've been saying all along. The pandemic changes a lot of the dynamics and the movement for black lives creates a new sense of urgency and a window of opportunity. Here we are, Brianna Taylor went to our public school. She graduated from <laughs> Western High School. So let's be a model for other urban districts. But I see on the sample ballot that there are, at least in my district, people running for the county school board. Is that true in other districts also, that they're running for school board? Two of the seven seats have contested races. Chris Brady is retiring, so his seat is being uh, sought by two new people. One of those two is Tea Parties. And then uh, the other race is Chris Kolb is in the Highlands and Crescent Hill area, and he is up for re-election. And he has a candidate, Jody Hurt, who is challenging him. I think Chris Kolb is pretty popular in his community because he is very progressive. He's aligned with Bernie and, you know, healthcare and all those good things that we know we need. He's been right on police-free schools and restorative practices. But if it's possible to say, I think we have an even more progressive candidate actually challenging him right now. Uh, we've seen an indication that Chris Kolb is not responsive to the demands of our coalition. So, uh, you know, I just think the public deserves to know that. Do you guys have any comment on the arguments that were being made on Nextdoor that this is an undemocratic process because the Board of Education should not be able to raise taxes without some kind of a public referendum? I agree with that, that this policy was already in place. So now is not the time to make that change. After this, we need to go back and look at that. But yeah. I still think it is democratic because, A, like Kimberly said, that law was put there by somebody through a process. And B, we do have the ability to elect our board members and hold our board members accountable. Actually, as a taxpayer, I've been lobbying them. I'm glad that they finally found the political courage to do this. But there are ways to hold them accountable. And that's the democratic process. If they're not doing what you want them to do with that money, then vote them out. I'm just looking at these comments from next door. This person says, since 2010, the JCPS budget has increased by $728 million, but the proficiency rate is still just 43%. Have we been getting increased spending in our so, public schools? The district is uh, reimbursed based on the number of students. Our population has actually decreased in the last couple of years, so our budget went from $1.8 billion, I believe, to $1.65. Like, I think it actually dropped this past year or two. Yvonne, do you know, can you confirm if I'm remembering wrong? Mm -hmm. It's 42 million over the last five years has how much money has been cut by the state. So we've actually lost money. In absolute money, we have less money. And then that proficiency rate just being 43%, that is a loaded line right there because how do you define proficiency? Our curriculum is culturally incompetent. And then we set our system up to label and punish and it's set up to fail. I'm also wondering if any of you guys could comment on the point somebody made that part of the problem is with the dominance of teachers unions. I'm happy to handle that one. You know, teaching is the only profession where people say the teachers are terrible. So to improve them, we need to cut their salaries, give them worse benefits, as lousy working conditions as possible. You know, isn't that odd? Teachers make 25% less than comparably educated professionals. We love kids and that's why we're here. 
So the thought then is to punish people and pay them less. Well, right now we can't get teachers. There's a teacher shortage in the entire nation. It's everywhere because you're not yeah. going to get people to work for what they're willing to pay. And what are teachers' salaries here in Jefferson County compared to other places? Are they comparable? Or are we are our teachers getting paid more or less than in other places close by? Almost every state, probably all of them, cut education after 2008. And then some of them gradually restored those cuts. I think only Massachusetts and like one more state are ahead. But Kentucky is like number four from the bottom from how little of that has been made up. So I don't think anybody's getting rich here. And what about administrators? I know that there were several comments made that administrators get bloated salaries. They make six figures. About the union first? Um, yeah. I would say that the teacher union is like the FOP to the police. I agree with that person's statement. I have seen firsthand and been oppressed by the teachers union firsthand, slandered even. So tell me more about the teachers union. It's an interesting parallel that you make between teachers and the police. What is it about the unions that makes them be pushy or makes them be domineering? What is it that you experienced? In my viewpoint, uh -huh. Children and families are our clients, and they should be treated as such. Even the community, people, taxpayers, they're our clients, and they should be treated and respected as such. In my opinion, and I can only say this because I have chosen not to be a part of the union, and so I'm going to use my voice and speak up. The reason I'm not a part of the union is I have recently seen where they're putting their needs and what they believe above the children's needs. And I have a problem with that. Can you give me an example? I just had an experience with the union where uh -huh. there was a teacher that was treating kids really bad. And uh, the union decided to attack me rather than to deal with that teacher. So they defended the teacher and just ignored the facts and ignored that this person was causing harm to students, both psychological and physical. I've seen both where that was ignored by the union and they defended that person and made sure that that person had nothing in their records concerning this and that it just looked all clean. The way the union is set up, good teachers don't have to teach at schools in the West End. And so those schools get brand new teachers and they get teachers that come and go fast because it's hard work, especially if you're a brand new teacher because those schools that are the neediest, it's hard work. And people choose not to go there. They'd rather go to mail or manual where they can have it easier uh, rather than deal with kids that really need the most experienced teachers. That's a really, really good point. I know. And you're bringing up a really interesting and provocative issue with unions is that unions have to take care of their own issues. My husband worked with the Steelworkers Union. He was engineering the ownership of the steel mill by the union. And he said, now you guys, you have to realize that there are certain things you cannot do in a union. You cannot, you know, clock in for another person because they just ask you. You can't 
take things from the supply and then protect your fellow workers, which is what the police are doing too with their unions. It's kind of a we, they, which is something that, that unions have to work on as well. But on the other side, if it weren't for unions, we would still have child labor. We would still have horrible things, uh, sweatshops. I mean, there's good reasons for having unions, not black and white. I agree with you. Unions are critical and we support unions 100%. What we are seeing and maybe what others are referring to is when leadership no longer reflect the concerns of its rank and file members. And you saw that last year and the year before. Teachers wanted to go to Frankfurt more than the union leadership wanted them to go. And so there was a lot of gaslighting and manipulation and attacking of, of allies. Some of these leaders have been in position for far too long and seem to be more concerned about protecting themselves and their power than they are about doing what their dues-paying members are expecting of them. It all boils down to the grassroots, I think. Keeping the power at the level of the people and the frontline workers, those people doing the work are the ones that need to have the input, not just union leaders and not management. It's kind of like maybe a crisis that we're having in leadership right now. You're seeing that in so many sectors. It's not just teachers. You're seeing a lot of grassroots organizations making the organizations do better, you know, making them do their jobs. The thing is, is that I've talked about the union and uh, it probably sounded like, like I'm totally against union. My husband is a blue collar worker. He, he's a mechanic. So he's a blue collar worker and he's been in unions over 30 years. And so it's not that I'm against unions. It's just that wrong is always wrong. It's just that right is always right. And so Ruth, like you said, unions should not be defending you if you're clocking in for somebody, theft of services. And so they should not be defending you if you're oppressing kids. That is illegal. That's taking away somebody's rights as a human. That is just totally wrong on all levels. And so when these things become more public, then people are gonna have to speak up for that. Just right now, the FOP, but there will be other unions that will be held accountable, I believe, for their actions. And maybe this is an era where we have to bring that whole issue up in front of the public, not just the FOP, but all the unions. And that's also doubly true with the management. And it needs a different perspective. People forget what unions were like when they started. You know, they didn't just support better wages at their job and forget everything else. As you pointed out, they ended child labor. They got people the weekend. They introduced the idea that workers deserve health care. They have worked for social issues, especially in the beginning, beyond just labor at their specific site. And then we got away from that. And now you're beginning to see it come back the other way. UTLA, the uh, teachers union in, in Chicago, Washington State Union are all working with BLM. Black Lives Matter. For sure it wouldn't have happened five years ago. And it wasn't happening one year ago, not like this. Where I think unions are returning to their roots. Where they are basically what they should have been initially. They missed their chance when Roosevelt talked them into staying 
in the Democratic Party instead of becoming a Labour Party, as they did in England and, well, everywhere in Europe. But they are turning into a Labour Party in the broad sense of improving lives for working people, mm-hmm. making sure people have daycares, making sure that everybody in this country has health care. You know, that college is tuition free, as it is in almost every industrialized country in the world. You know, mm-hmm. how does Costa Rica do it? Ecuador was doing this in the 1970s. How is Ecuador able to do it and we can't? But I'm hopeful about the future of labor because of that. You know, didn't there used to be a labor section in the newspaper? Now Every it's just newspaper different. had a labor reporter. Uh-huh. And I don't know if there are any left. The New York uh-huh. Times no longer has one. I was friends with the old labor reporter. <laughs> you know, when she passed away, I don't think they replaced her. Well, you know, we're getting off topic, and but sure, it's, very, it's very intriguing to me because it's something else my husband used to say. You know, in, in the way that we have work, it's not democratic. The boss gets to fire you. The boss has the last word. Management has the last word. It's always top down, top down, no bottom up. And my husband's point always was that there should be a bill of rights for all workers and that there should be a bottom up also configuration that it's not just management that decides who to hire and fire, but it's also the people that work you know, in the trenches that should be allowed to also comment and critique the management and be allowed to hire and fire the management. It ought to go both ways. And there should be some kind of uh, a system that is more democratic because that's in fact what this country is supposed to be as a democracy, but eight hours a day and sometimes a lot more, we don't have a democracy. We have a dictatorship in the workplace and that's at some point is gonna have to change. So we're bringing up all kinds of issues and um, it just goes to show how complex everything is and how related everything is to everything else. But getting back, do you guys have any other comments you'd like to make? I would just like to encourage people that want to support the grassroots groups that are placing demands on the district. We have a decision date coming up on October 11th where we're going to announce if we're in support or in opposition of the tax increase. Like we haven't come out one way or the other. It's going to be dependent upon the district's response to our list of demands that are very reasonable. And if somebody wants to support us, they can go to DearJCPS.com and sign our pledge. Anyone else? On our show, Yvonne. How about that? We can continue the conversation then. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I really want more cross-pollinating to go on on this radio station. I think that the stations all have something really, really valuable to contribute. And we can come up with some real innovations if we do a little cross-pollinating, I think. So thank you guys for being on my show. Thank you, Kimberly. Do you have any other comment you'd like to make? I just think that we all need to be good stewards. Uh, when we're thinking about what we're going to vote for. And if we are going to vote for the tax increase, we need to make sure that we hold people accountable for our monies. That's my opinion. Well, that's that's where it's at. That is the key. And that's the only way a democracy can function is by holding people accountable. That was Kimberly Johnson and Yvonne Rovira, both JCPS educators 
and Gay Adelman, co-founder of Dear JCPS, an advocacy organization. All three of them lending their perspective on the school tax levy proposal that you'll be voting on. And they were also responding to commentary on this issue that appeared in the Nextdoor app. I'm just now noticing that in order to view the four polling locations that are servicing all voters in this election, you have to fill in your address. If you just click on where do I vote, you don't see it. After filling in your address, now make sure that you abbreviate the street, avenue, court, etc. part of your address. I made the mistake of typing in Lane, L-A-N-E, instead of the abbreviation and was informed that this address did not exist. So after filling in your address, you'll see a rather long message from the Jefferson County Clerk. You will need to scroll down past that message to see the polling locations for early voting, and this is beginning on October the 13th during regular office hours Monday through Saturday, you will be able to vote both in person and using a drop box at these four sites. The Kentucky Exposition Center, north wing of the fairgrounds, the KFC Yum Center at Main and 2nd Street, the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage, at 1701 West Muhammad Ali and the Louisville Marriott East at 1903 Embassy Square Boulevard. And also on Election Day, there will be 20 vote centers available for use. This information and any updates are all available at the website jeffersoncountyclerk.org. And if you haven't already applied for an absentee ballot, by going to GoVoteKY.com, you have only until October the 9th to apply online. But please, please vote early in order to ensure that your vote will be counted. Stay tuned for upcoming shows on Election Connection that will attempt to shed light on the issues we all face in this November election. And thank you for listening to... Elaine!